Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Blitzbach. My friends, I am so happy we have Michelle today. Michelle has been a long-term follower of this podcast. I think she was actually one of my first followers. And we have had a lot of interactions together. She's had a lot of challenges after her breast cancer treatment. And I thought she'd be such a great person to come on and tell you about what her challenges were and sort of how she worked through all of these, because she's done a really great job advocating for herself. So Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. Oh, well, thanks. So tell everybody a little bit about your story when you were diagnosed, you know, you're just your upfront part of all of this. So they know where you were starting from. Okay. I was diagnosed in October, 2018 uh, with HER2 negative hormone receptor positive breast cancer. I uh, chose to have a double mastectomy. They had said for sure I had to have, you know, the single mastectomy, but I thought, I'm not going to deal with that for the rest of my life. I just want them gone. So I had that done with Eric Spanders placed in December and started chemotherapy in January of 2019. And then that was followed with 28 rounds and five boosters of radiation. And all that ended after Labor Day in September. And I think they put you on hormonal therapy after that as well, right? They did. I'm on tamoxifen, like forever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's always lovely, isn't it? Oh, you're not, you know, you're not just on this for 10 years. You're, You're on it indefinitely. Well, I don't have hardly any side effects from it. I have the hot flashes, but from what I've heard, other ladies, I'm thankful. I don't have what they have. There's some who have really bad side effects who choosing not to take it because it's so bad. Yeah. And mine, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. There are people with hot flashes, even who are not on tamoxifen. I mean, my hot flashes make me relatively miserable on a daily basis, but it is what it is. So when did your struggles with everything start? So tell people, first of all, what issues came up for you? I will say, looking back at that time frame of all the the different, the trifecta of my treatment steps, radiation to me at that time, during that time, was the easiest part. I didn't get tired. I didn't get sick. You know, I walked every day. Towards the end, I did get a bad blister, like in my armpit area. Mm -hmm. And so she postponed that angle for like a week and a half or something like that. Other than that, it was smooth sailing. Yeah. But I will say about two months after that, I got a frozen shoulder, I think they called it. And I could hardly lift my arm, maybe 90 degrees. Wow. It was like, when I tried to explain it to my husband, Randy, he said, well, that sounds like a piece of bacon when you put it in the microwave. And I said, that's exactly what it is. You can envision the meat part just drying up and getting tight and hard to lift. So I 
talked to my reconstructive surgeon and she said, well, let's get you some physical therapy. So she approved 12 weeks worth of that, like twice a week Mm -hmm. for 12 weeks. And that was worth every darn penny I put into it. (laughs) That was, man, I thought I've never been to physical therapy, but that was awesome. They fixed that problem. Yeah. Well, that's a blessing because you sort of can't live with your shoulder frozen. I mean, how do you do your hair? How do you brush your teeth? I you couldn't know. even put a jacket on. You know how you would put your arm behind to put a right. jacket? I couldn't even do that. It was horrible. Yeah. A frozen shoulder is really significantly bad in terms of reducing quality of life. Yeah. I couldn't live with that. Yeah. So I got past that hurdle. And the next challenge I faced, we had decided to do surgery a year after radiation ended so that my skin had time to heal. Mm-hmm. And I'd been getting the injections and the expanders and all that, you know, that story. I got the implant exchange July, 2020. And about six weeks after the surgery, I noticed my left side, which is the side that was treated, began to get firmer, mm-hmm. rounder, and started to rise up in my chest. And I remember it was a Sunday morning. I, I went into the bathroom and I took my shirt off and I was completely lopsided. I think right. one time you posted a picture on your Facebook page and that looked exactly like yeah. me. With a capsular contracture. I remember that picture. Yes. Yeah. We talked and, about um, that at the time. And I thought, this is not the way it's supposed to look. My right side looked great. My left side, no. And it was painful. You couldn't sleep with that. You couldn't lay on your side. It was like a rock was there. And when I stood up in the morning, it was, you just felt it pulse. At a follow-up appointment with my plastic surgeon, she walked in and she said, how's it going, Michelle? And I said, well, I'm a little lopsided. And she said, oh, and she looked and she immediately said, you have third degree capsular contracture. And I had never heard of that. And I'm not going to try and explain it if you want to try to explain it because <laughs> so it's, audience. you know, for all the people in the audience, a capsular contracture, when you have an implant put in, sometimes the tissue around it gets very tight and very firm and it reduces the mobility of the implant and sort of fixes it in place and almost squeezes it. So as time goes by, it pulls it up and it constricts it and it makes it feel very firm and hard. And it's not only an issue for, in terms of the cosmesis and meaning how it looks, it's actually a quality of life issue because it becomes very tense and tight and it limits people's range of motion on that side sometimes. And it's often very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I had read, I think it's like 15 to 20% can experience this. And even people who haven't been through breast cancer treatment. Right. Even people who just have, just have implants can get a capsular contracture. They can have that. And I understand it's also with other, any kind of foreign implant in your body that can happen. So she said, I will tell you the most successful surgery that I do for this is called a lap flap, which is where they take muscle, skin, blood supply, from your t- latissimus dorsi, is that right? Yes, that is. On the back. And you, and basically what she did is she took, she cut a chunk from my back and tunneled it underneath my skin to the front and replaced 
the radiated skin that was causing problems with my back skin. So I have like two freckles on my front that were used to be on my back. (laughs) And the idea of that is to get rid of that skin that has developed so much scar tissue and has reacted that way and create a fresh place to put another expander in. That surgery was very invasive. I had spoken to three ladies who had it done and they had warned me. They said, this is pretty big deal. You do lose a section of your back, the feeling. Like if I lay on the ground watching TV, there's a section I can't feel anymore. Yeah. And it's because those muscles are in the front. And sometimes when I do certain activities, like if I open a jar or if I close the car door and you typically would use those muscles in your back to do that, they contract now in the front. Yeah. It's the strangest weirdest sensation. And I'm still adjusting to that. And that I had that done in January. So I'm getting used to it. I'm getting there. It feels a lot better, but I definitely, you know, would tell somebody who's considering this just to realize what you're getting into with it. I have been told, I have been promised. I have been assured that (laughs) in the long run, I will be very happy with this. And I am happier every day that goes by. I've gotten used to it. I'm still getting used to that, that feeling in the front. If I, if those muscles contract, yeah, it's very strange. My back, I have to watch my back because sometimes like at yoga the other day, we were on a yoga ball and you, we were bending our back. Mm -hmm. It didn't hurt, but it's like, I'm not sure if my back's on this ball because I couldn't feel it like that side. I couldn't feel. And I thought I could see where I could easily fall off thinking I'm not even on it. And so I had the final implant exchange uh, in June. Okay. And it was just a small implant because like I said, there was quite a bit of fresh new flesh from my back to the front. So she didn't have to put like a large implant in there. I will say, you know, she did a great job matching the incision lines Mm -hmm. on both sides. They look, they're in the exact same place. So I think it was even though I had additional surgeries, kept the visual yeah. to a minimum. Uh, my back does have a pretty good scar on it. She put it at the bra line or a bathing suit line. So yeah. you can't really see it. Nobody's ever pointed it out. And it's not, it wasn't fun to go through. For sure. How long did it take you really to recuperate from that second surgery? The one in January? That one, I would say it took me a while. It took me, I know at my six week appointment, you know, I was really just starting to become much more mobile. I continued my walk. Like I tried to go walking after about two weeks Yeah, because I came out of there with three drains just on that left side. I will say, I feel like it was a more invasive surgery than my double mastectomy. My husband says, I've just forgotten what it was like. (laughs) And I said, yeah, no, I think I remember because it involves your back. Yeah. You know, with the mastectomy, it's really just the front and you lose, you really lose all those nerves. So the pain isn't quite as noticeable as when you've got another part of your body involved. And I'm sure it's the same thing with the deep flap. I'm sure that those ladies, it's like a C-section. I'm sure those ladies have an adjustment period too. 
Absolutely. Anytime you start moving things around, you can get some weird sensations and some weird discomfort and really common. I know that after they identified the capsular contracture, they tried a medication with you. And that is actually something that's not done where I am in the US. So tell tell people what they used and how that, you know, because I know you said it worked initially. Yes. I think it was Claritin. It's an allergy medicine. Yeah. They actually put that on me the very day I started radiation. Okay. Because when I went to, to see them, you know, for one of my follow-ups before radiation began, she said, I need for you to take this because this will help keep your expander from moving up into your chest during radiation. Every day you take this and you will take this until you have your final surgery. So I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And even though I did that and I went through the surgery and had my exchange, it's still, it's just so interesting that it, that it, you didn't have it until after the second surgery, you know, many people have it when they still have the expanders. So, you know, it's interesting that it did keep your expanders from sort of that, you know, but your body, like once you stopped it, your body was like, all right, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You know, we just delayed the inevitable. Yes, it did. And I took it at night because she said, you know, you don't want to be sleepy during the daytime. I, I, I really didn't have any reaction to it, but I took it every night, thankfully, as she told me to. So yeah, it did keep that thing down, but I can't imagine taking that for the rest of my life. Right to keep that thing down. Right. I don't need more medicine. Right. Especially after, for something that's cosmetic. Right. It's something it's interesting. After you mentioned that I went back and looked and there is some case reports that that helps, but I couldn't find any randomized trials. So it's something that would be interesting to see if they do that at some point in the future with a more extended trial of that. Right. And I know one of the things that was a challenge for you when you went to do this next go around of surgery, there was some blowback in terms of what people had to say about it. Yes. I went on social media and I was looking for just advice and direction from ladies who actually had gone through it. And I had several ladies who like yourself, who are present in the social media community, who, who they had a lot of followers. Well, when the question went out, you know, Michelle's thinking about this, I, I got some ladies who actually directly messaged me and said, yes, I had that, but you know what? I'm learning to live with it because I'm just happy to be alive and cosmetics. That doesn't bother me. And I, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for support and people who had it done, not people who didn't have it done right? and who had judgments towards me. And I probably got three of those messages like that. And I just thought, why would you even message me right. if you didn't have it done? I'm, that's not what I'm looking for. Everybody has their own choices. This was my choice. You know, there, there are three choices you have when you get this situation, you can live with it right. or you can have it taken out and go flat. Right. Or you can have revision surgery of whatever, whatever's available. Right. I've just learned with social media, it's very valuable in getting support and camaraderie and all those great things, but you have to be very careful. It's a double-edged sword because there are going to be people who are going to tell you you're making the wrong decision. Yes, they, they did. And uh, made me feel like I was submitting myself to yet another surgery that was not necessary. 
Right. And I would tell them now, I very much am happy with it. I wish I didn't have to go through it, but I also, I wished more. I didn't have to live with that. For sure. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, if, if nothing else, I was going to go flat. I wasn't. And I've already said, if something happens to this, I won't know more. I will go flat. Yeah. I no more. I think one of the things that was useful along that time is at one point, I remember coaching you a little bit of, you know, what are your options? And I think that you had not really recognized at that point that going flat was really an option. Right. And, you know, I, it's always a good thing to tell ourselves because if we're telling ourselves, we either have to live with this or have more surgery, it's always good to really just give our brain all the options that are truthfully available. And so even if it's not what you're going to choose, just recognizing that going flat was an option, I think made you feel like there were more things that you could do. Yeah. And I think you're the one who told me that. I think we were talking about, you said, well, you know, you do have the option of going flat and nobody had really said that to me. It was more, we're going to constantly do this thing and this thing to fix this problem. Nobody had said that to me. I appreciated you pointing that out because that did lay the foundation for now. My attitude now is if something else happens, I will go flat. It just gives you a sense of control of, you know, a bit more freedom in your decision-making because, you know, when your brain is telling you there's only two choices, sometimes like just being able to recognize other choices brings us a bit more ease and contentment with the decision that we make. Yeah. And one of the things that I think was something that we talked about how you deal with this sort of with your immediate circle of people is that there was some resistance to having this. And really we talked about just bringing to light and helping people understand that this was not just cosmetic. This was comfort and quality of life, because I think some people are going to tell you, Oh, you don't need it to look great. It doesn't really matter. But what they don't understand is that it's really uncomfortable as well as not looking as great as it could. I think if it had just not looked great, you might not have felt so strongly about continuing the process. I think it can continue to get worse from what I understand. I think there's four grades that can become extremely painful. I wouldn't say mine was painful. It was just very uncomfortable, but I can see where it was beginning to even get higher up in my chest. Yeah. I could feel it. I could feel the implant. And I thought, okay, this is not going to get better. I knew that. And there was one person in my family who made a comment because I made the choice to go ahead and make my right side a little bigger because this was my one chance in my life that I could have something a little bigger than a size B, you know, I thought, okay, well, I can go to between a C and a D. I didn't want to be real big. I mean, I'm five foot 10, so I could have handled a size D, but I thought, okay, this is my chance to go a little bigger. And when I made that announcement, it was told to me, well, why are you going to mess with your right side? Can't you leave well enough alone? And I just, I made that point at that point. I said, I'm not telling anybody else. Yeah. And I didn't, I never did. I'm I'm not even my parents know unless they listen to this podcast. (laughs) I don't even know because it, it was my choice. I thought, you know, I'm going underneath and exchanging an implant Right. You know, yeah. what difference does it make one but versus two? And I think that's one of the things that we really want to let people know is if you're not in this position and you have a family member or a friend who is having this done, 
just be aware that what you say can, you know, really affect people in how they feel about their decisions and themselves and just be kind and loving. Yeah. And, you know, just watch what you say, you know, you don't have to, when somebody's telling you that they're going to do this, they're not necessarily telling you to get your approval. Right. I was just saying this, oh, by the way, I'm going to, you know, get a little bit bigger, you know, just give your support and say, oh, I'm, I'm sure you're looking forward to this being over with, you know, and that way it's not your opinion. That's great advice. I like which that. nobody wants that anyway. Just say, I'm sure you're glad to get this over with soon. Right. And that's so true. Like at that point, you've made your decision. So anyone telling you that they think you should do differently is just going to create conflict between the two of you. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make you feel sad and uncomfortable with your decision making. You well, know, and it made me think, gosh, am I jinxing myself? You know, is, is something going to happen? And then it'll be like, yeah, I told you so. Or, <laughs> But I think what we did get to with that as well, though, is for the patients to realize that so many of the things people say are because they love you and want to protect you. And so they're afraid that something bad could happen. And they're trying to, you know, put their thoughts and feelings into making you do what they think is the safest. Yeah. So I think it's good for patients to understand too, that people aren't doing this to be mean. They're often doing this out of fear. So they're, they're fearful for you and they're trying to control what you do out of fear. Mm-hmm. And that I think helps to make you feel a little bit less, maybe like you're butting heads when you can see it from their standpoint of, you know, they're afraid more than that. They're criticizing. Yeah. Well, I took it the other way because <laughs> right there in the moment and you're telling people because you feel good. Oh, I made this decision for myself after all this crap I've been through. This yeah. is the one thing that I can do that maybe will make me feel a little bit better about myself. No, I remember in the moment you felt that way. And I think we coached about that afterwards. Yes, and we did. You know, at least we got to a place down the road where you were able to like, look at it with a bit more, maybe curiosity which curiosity is always a good thing when we're dealing with what other people say, because if you're curious why they say what they say, it's better Mm -hmm. than if you're just pissed at what they say, you know, it helps you to be a little bit more open to what they say and maybe understand where they're coming from. Not that that's your job uh, after cancer. It's not your job to figure out what other people are, you know, thinking, but sometimes, unfortunately we have to interact with our family members and, you know, We want to try and make that as harmonious as possible. What advice would you have for people who are going through this process? I would tell you what I wish I was told to begin with is go ahead and understand up front that there's going to be things that change. It may be during the chemo phase or the radiation phase or your reconstruction phase. Something might change. They might tweak it a little bit depending on how you react or many different things. And that's okay. And that's actually normal, I think, for something to change. I'm, I imagine it's a very small percentage that go from beginning to end flawlessly. With no changes? Absolutely. Right? And so I think it would be nice to know that that's okay and that that's normal. So for your newly diagnosed audience, uh, just please remember that it's okay. And your doctors are advising you to the best of their knowledge with what's going on that's most comfortable for you and what's the best thing for you. 
and just to have faith in them. You know, that's, that's the big thing I had to learn because I didn't, I've never heard about problems, you mm. know, with somebody going, you know, in through the different phases of treatment. I just thought you just went through it. I think you're it's totally okay. right. I think the number of people who get through chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, reconstruction with nothing being changed from the initial plan is probably 10%. You know, I think 90% of people probably have something tweaked along the way, whether it's a week of chemo held because your blood counts are low Mm -hmm. or a dose reduction in your chemo. That's super common because people's bodies will respond very strongly to the chemo. And sometimes the dose will have to be reduced. Sometimes you have to hold the radiation. Sometimes we use something called bolus when people have had a mastectomy, which is a tissue over top of the thing. And we'll pull that off partway through due to burning. Oftentimes people will have little tweaks after their reconstruction where they do fat grafting or something to help make it look better. So I I think you're absolutely correct. I bet the percentage that go through with no changes at all I bet it's only 10%. So, so many people too require having to come back for aspirations of fluid collections afterwards. So the drains get pulled and then there's still Mm -hmm. fluid and you have to go in and pull it out with a needle. That is very common. Unfortunately, it's not like pulling a tooth. There's a lot more that goes into this than it would be if you're just pulling a tooth at the dentist. Well, I think that's really good advice for people. And anyone you want to give a shout out to at this point? Oh, well, let me think. Uh, My husband, Randy, uh, we've been married 35 years at the end of this month. Oh, we are high school sweethearts. Uh, He was with me every step of the way, every meeting, every surgery. He took care of me and can never get, you know, never get over that. Never repay that. It's just so lovely. My grandson was born in June, my yes. first grandson. And so exciting. I'm so happy to be here to see that and, you know, witness that. And, you know, when you go through something like this, you truly learn to appreciate the littlest things because I think survivorship is harder than treatment. That's just me. That is actually what I ended up realizing, which started this whole podcast and this whole program and this whole thing that I do is realizing how many people are struggling more in survivorship than they were during their treatment. Yes. And it's so much more common than we realize. If your listeners haven't joined your Facebook page, I hope that they do best life after cancer because you're daily postings and your inspirational quotes and your reminders have helped me tremendously. And I thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. I know that takes a lot of time. It does take some time. It does take some time. So funny. I'm starting to get people now who post, who who message me and are like, wait, how do you do everything you do? you know, uh, between the work and the podcast and the Facebook group and having four kids, it is funny. Like people are starting to like add it all up and be like, wait, are there really that many hours in the week? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. It's so nice to see you today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. Did you know you can get more information on my website, bestlifeaftercancer.com? 
There is also a Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD, where there is a group just for survivors. Here you are able to interact with me, ask questions, and get more help. I'd love to see you there. Have a great week, and I'll speak with you soon.